Sit down if you want to. Right in the middle of what's going on. I'm in the middle of an interrogation. Take a seat, young Skywalker. The middle children of history, man. Middle of the day, Alfred. Please, take a seat there. Right now, I'm in the middle of nowhere. Stop the middle of the base hit! Meeting in the middle. Fight, fight. They fought for the freedom of middle. 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 The middle of the middle of the middle. The middle of a war. Friggin' ridiculous. Why don't we have a seat to talk about? No, not the middle seat. Come into a whole new world of magic and movies tonight. It is the Middle Seats podcast, the best seat in the house for all things entertainment. For my first wish, I wish for you to listen to my voice. I'm the host of this great show, Andrew OJ. For my second wish, I'd like to introduce you to my amazing co-host. He's the Sultan of Super Smash Brothers, Mr. Nate Longarini. <laughs> How's it going, everybody? Abracadabra to you all. I'm ready for some magic tonight. We're going to have a lot of magic tonight, Nate. I guarantee that. Now, a lot of people think a long time about their third wish, and I've given a lot of careful consideration to this one. My third wish is to replace my other co-host, Mr. Jake Kensler, with the legendary Roger Ebert. I can't even be mad at you. That makes sense. Right? <laughs> I, yeah, I would no. take that in a heartbeat. Doing Sorry, a heartbeat. <laughs> Just about to try and come back with something, and then you said Roger Ebert. And I mean, you know, okay. <laughs> I'm not going to fight you. That makes sense. Right? Isn't it an easy decision? <laughs> Roger Ebert is a legend, and there's a lot of legendary discussion that's going to be going on on the Middle Seats podcast tonight. If you're joining us for the first time, our show is usually divided into three different segments. We usually do a lobby talk segment where we kind of just wrap around and talk about a topic that one of the crew has proposed. Then we have our news segment where we go over the biggest news stories of the week, and then we go into our feature review. A little different this week because we're right in the thick of summer. We want to make sure that we get to all the big blockbusters coming out. So we'll have our lobby talk, which is a fun kind of mix of our double review tonight. And then we have back-to-back, two of the biggest movies of May, John Wick Chapter 3 and the live-action adaptation of Aladdin. If you would like to skip around during the show, there are time codes in the descriptions below. We're happy you're joining us in any capacity, and we understand that maybe you can't listen to the whole thing. Anyway, I've gotten all the nitty-gritty out of the way. Let's move into lobby talk. Let's all go to the lobby. You in the lobby? What do you look like? I will blow up the block before you can make the lobby. All right, so it's my week for lobby talk, and with Aladdin coming out, I always thought... What if Disney decided no holds barred and just whoever the director is to remake one of their all-time classics? So, for example, if they allowed Quentin Tarantino to remake Mulan in whatever vision he wanted, how would it come out? What would it look like? Would it be good? (laughs) I'm sure that would be sensitive. (laughs) (laughs) I would love to see that after Kill Bill and whatever else. But anyway, without further ado, Nate, what's your movie and what director do you think uh, would work best for it? All righty. So... I was just going through the list, and I was trying to avoid movies that they haven't said they're going to remake yet. And I focused on a little cult classic that's a little little underappreciated, but was a, a fun romp in its time. That's Treasure Planet. Cool little pirate story, but happens to be in space. Not only get all the fun tech stuff, but you also get, like, the gritty adventure stuff. And I thought... There's no better director who combines futuristic sci-fi with gritty realism better than your man, Ridley Scott. He was made famous off of how Blade Runner combined his noir elements with the sci-fi elements. 
And I think this is right up his alley. I think it would be a legitimately good movie. Yeah, if, if they could get him to agree to that, that would be a hell of a Disney remake. Right, some kind of chestburster scene-esque in a Disney <laughs> right. movie. Well, that's the cool thing. Like, Blade Runner is rated R, but it doesn't really hinge itself too much on its R rating. I don't think it needs it, per se. You could obviously have cool alien stuff if you wanted to, but, it, like, it wouldn't need to rely on the gore factor, I think, right. to be a genuinely good movie. To be fair, Alien is pretty, besides the chestburster scene, is pretty much built on atmosphere and suspense, and he is definitely really good at doing that, and that's what sci-fi, mm. that's 50% of sci-fi right there. And, like, there's the fun parts of Treasure Planet, too, like the the robot and I think, like, the foxy lady or whatever, and Ridley Scott is no stranger to humor, too. The Martian is a pretty funny movie. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so you wouldn't lose the charm of the original, per se, but you would definitely have a very different take. Right. That's about as good as it gets right there. So now so now what we're going to do is we're each going to say which director we think would work best for that movie. So I'll let Andrew take it from here. Nate, I think we're thinking along these same lines here, but I think I'm going to go a little bit more modern. I'm surprised you didn't say who I'm about to say because you are actually more enamored with his work than I am. Uh, a lot of Treasure Planet is – it's a weird microcosm of a weird time in Disney's history – where they were kind of getting steamrolled by Shrek and Ice Age and the other CGI. They had one foot in 2D animation and one foot in 3D animation, and they kind of combined that, and it made for some really weird and kooky visuals. And I think if you were to translate that to those weird atmospheric visuals to the live-action format, you could have something really deeply disturbing and really awe-inspiring. And I think those are words that I would use to describe Alec Garland's two movies, Ex Machina and Annihilation. Especially the shimmer of Annihilation. There's a lot of visual similarities to that mm. in Treasure Planet, especially with that pink blobby character or whatever like that. And then, of course, that big, like, gold place where they end up towards the end of it. So I can really see the visuals being stunning. I definitely like the sci-fi picks there. But yeah, that, I saw you moaning there, Jake. Contain yourself. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I love Ex Machina and Annihilation. Talk about, you know... Small little cult movies, my favorite movie last year. Honestly, both of your picks are better than mine. <laughs> I would love to see either one of them do that. I was going to say, you know, talk about sci-fi and adventure and stuff like that. J.J. Abrams could definitely do Treasure Planet. Oh, definitely. Yeah, right up his alley. It would be a much safer pick than both of yours, but it would get done and get done well for sure. And Disney would actually agree to it. It's really right. <laughs> right. They might be okay with right, it. Like yeah. That could actually happen. He's got his foot in that door for sure. Yeah, no, that's mm. definitely the most realistic of the three choices. And it's like the easiest to visualize, I think, because Star Trek and Star Wars, the jump to Treasure Planet is not as big as the jump from Alien and yeah, Annihilation. Literally, I can already picture the same cast from the last two movies, just like a mesh together. <laughs> and the only thing you're actually changing is that you're on a pirate ship instead of the Enterprise or the Falcon. <laughs> right. Yeah. Just take Treasure Planet and put a bunch of lens flares in it, and then we're good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Give one character a ponytail to look like a pirate, and you're done. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. I like all three of our choices. Yeah, I'd be down for any of that. So for our next pick, I will let Andrew pitch that one. Go on ahead there, big guy. We kind of were like trying to do little subsections of Disney movies, and mm -hmm. I kind of took like the classics area. All the movies around this movie are being remade. So you have Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, Lion King. Basically, I'm talking about the Disney Renaissance, kind of. Right, right, and right. Little Mermaid was the one that kicked off the Renaissance, and yet we've heard very slow but sure movements. They're going to do it eventually, especially if these movies continue to make the money that they do. But there has been no real official casting or anything like that. 
So that leaves a lot open to interpretation. And with that in mind, who would we pick for a director of Little Mermaid? Jake, what do you think? One of my absolute favorite directors working today, Damien Chazelle. Yep. He did First Man, which is about space, so I'm sure he could tackle underwater, and we know he can direct the hell out of a musical. La La Land and First Man had great visuals and sets and all kinds of stuff. I think he could do an amazing Little Mermaid. You took my backup choice. Nicely done. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that was on my list too as potentials. Hell yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> so if it's a musical, you have to consider him. It really just comes down to he's, that. Yeah, he's unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. And I think the thing that you touched on that was really nice there is that it's La La Land and First Man are very different movies, but the skill sets that he shows off in those movies really inform him being the correct choice for something like this. Because like you said, the visual effects in First Man are excellent. And then, of course, the musical part of La La Land, too. The boisterous visuals and the cinematography there. It's just every scene in that movie is beautiful. He's vibrant, too, which is so key for A Little Mermaid. Uh, Absolutely. My pick, similar vein, but it's definitely not as exciting, per se. Uh, This would be a little bit more of a muted story, I think. Um, But I'm going to go with Alfonso Cuaron. Ooh. Also directed a space movie with gravity there. And then, obviously, he's got the cinematography down pat, which we saw in Roma last year. (laughs) Absolutely. I'd be very curious to see how he would handle an underwater element. It's a lot more color than I've seen in most of his movies. But even if he went, like, a more muted tone... Uh, it could match the darker elements of the original Little Mermaid story. We all know, like, the happy cartoon, but the actual fairy tale it's based off of is super dark. There is murder. Uh, I think Ariel, like, would commit suicide at the end if they went the full way. Like, it's Yeah, no, I I totally saw that that was the route you were going with it because Children of Men is kind of a bleak, dystopian, futuristic fairy tale as well. It's got those elements of it. So I can see him taking what he did really well with Children of Men and putting it in the vein of this classic story that we know of under the sea. But really, it's just it's grim and it's dark. And that's what a lot of these stories are. Oh, yeah. The original (laughs) Hunchback is the worst example of that. But yeah, I'm I'm pretty sure Quaran can direct the hell out of anything. So that's an excellent choice. I didn't think about that. The problem is he takes eight years off in between movies. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Every time he does a movie, he needs a five year hiatus. Right. There have been two presidents by the time he makes another movie, basically. (laughs) I like that we all of us took a little bit of a different approach with this because Jake went with the big blockbustery musical part of it and Nate took the adapting of the true story. And I kind of looked at it from like the female perspective because the original Little Mermaid, as great of a movie as it is and really entertaining as it is, it kind of gets like a little bit of a bad rap for how it treats the Ariel character. So I, like I'm looking for a director that can kind of do justice to make the Ariel character three dimensional and still deliver on entertainment and laughs and and fun. So for the feminist pick, guys, I want to talk about Michael Bay. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Yikes. They had me going in the first half there. Yikes. <laughs> um, Greta Gerwig made one of my favorite movies of all time at this point, uh, Lady Bird. And she is so in control of storytelling. She's so in control of writing and dialogue and stuff. It still remains to be seen of whether she could handle like a big budget. That was my only question. I thought you were going to say Patty Jenkins because of a budget. That would be another great choice, too. Well, so for those listening and that don't know, Patty Jenkins directed Wonder Woman. So we're, we're clear. Yeah. The reason I would pick Greta Gerwig over Patty Jenkins is I think her skill set kind of leans more towards musical. From the emotional, you know, sensible character work, 
standpoint, Greta Gerwig is an excellent choice. I think Catherine Bigelow, if we're going for a more dramatic version, could also be a good choice. She did uh, Zero Dark Thirty and The Hurt Locker. She's an Oscar winner as mm. well. Right, excellent. Yeah, director. she's super talented. I think having the female voice behind the camera in general is what I'm looking for. And to me, I think I think Greta is probably the top on my list right now. That's very. That's a very good point. Yeah, I wish I thought of that. <laughs> Do you yeah. think that risks the seashell bra though? Mm. <laughs> It'll be I'm done kidding. more tastefully. <laughs> it, yeah, it would be more tasteful. That's a mermaid thing in general. It's not just like an aerial yeah, thing. Yeah. You know? Anyway, that's that's Little Mermaid. Yeah, good, very good choices. Very good choices. Um, so my pick is kind of in the middle of those two, and it is uh, Hercules. So I know not everybody loves Hercules. It's not one of the more well-known ones. I was a big Hercules fan when I was younger. I really liked the story of this kind of wimpy kid growing up to be this almighty hero. I love the monsters, the fantasy aspect of it. And I thought, who were some of the most hottest action directors working today? And right now, for me, that's the Russo brothers, who did, obviously, for those who don't know, Winter Soldier, Civil War, Infinity War, and Avengers Endgame. That's all Russo brothers. I would love to see how they tackle Hercules and all the action and story and drama they could pull off. Can't argue with it. Yeah, that that's a great pick. You got the comedy chops there. Absolutely. Yep. And you could totally rock an action scene with all the Titans and stuff, too, for the final fight. Oh, you could have a lot of fun. There. Oh, yeah. We know they can handle special effects. Now, here's my mm -hmm. question. Is this version a musical? Ooh, I still think they could handle it. But like, yeah, I'm sure they I'm sure they could. I'm looking at my pick now. I considered all action side. I didn't really consider the musical part. I picked David right. Leitch. David Leitch, who was a co-director on the first John Wick movie, he did Deadpool 2, he did Atomic Blonde, he's going to be directing the next Fast and Furious movie. And I think something that I've been looking for is well-choreographed action one, and also really stylized, over-the-top action, which is what Hercules needs to be. If you look at that Hobbs and Shaw trailer, he's got no problem with that oh, last Oh, yeah, one. it's so ridiculous. <laughs> right. But I think, like, even with Deadpool, somebody who's, like, basically indestructible, which is kind of what Hercules is, you need to be find a way to make the action engaging while also making it feel like there is some kind of stakes. And yeah. he was able to do that in Deadpool, too. So I think that's where I was looking at it. I just don't know how he would handle the, the music. Maybe I take the music out of this version. Mm -hmm. That's actually kind of funny because I went a very similar route with a potentially controversial pick. It definitely has the highest chance for failure i think but i hmm. still would want to see it just for at least the laughs and i'm going Zack snyder <laughs> now hear me out the man can direct an action scene we know that but he does not do too well with the story i think a live action remake or something similar where the story is already made actually really appeals to his strengths there because i liked what he did with 300 i liked what he did with watchmen especially and if Disney already has the script for him, he just has to make all the action scenes as cool as he can. And I think he could. Just keep it simple, stupid. <laughs> exactly. It would at least be a fun rock. Right. I, I could see it. Now, unfortunately, we have gotten some mediocre to bad Hercules movies within the last five plus years. But I think Snack Snyder would definitely do a better job than the last two. Yeah. I'm afraid we're just too far into the meme territory that he would be leaning right into that. He needs to do something different. <laughs> And I don't think this is different enough for his next project, but I, I don't object to it. I think it's interesting. For sure interesting. It would be a dark Hercules. <laughs> oh, for sure. But Probably. Bo both like in how it was lit and also. Yes. Hercules would like <laughs> brutally murder people 
in the dark. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think I'd actually be most hyped to see what he would do with the other gods, because you could get kind of creative with that. That's mm-hmm. true. Yeah, Poseidon, Zeus. I'd be worried that he'd go, like, too much into 300 territory and make it too bloody and gruesome. Um, and the more I'm talking about it, the more I think it's a bad idea. But <laughs> you could at least get some cool character designs and some damn cool fight scenes out of it. At the very least. At the very right. least. Even if the movie ends up just and there will be some at least cool moments in there for sure. Yeah. Well, let me let me cut you off, guys, before Nate changes his mind. Jake, this was a really fun topic. Thanks for proposing it. It's a oh, really thanks. good idea. That, yeah, that was weird. I shouldn't do that again. <laughs> oh, God, I almost threw up a little bit. That's the nicest mouth. he's been in 33 episodes, ladies yeah, and gentlemen. And it was honestly a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> he's taking it back now. Um, if you guys have your own pitches for us, we would love to hear them because this is a really fun thing to talk about. We've only scratched the surface. We haven't even gotten to the really obscure things. My favorite pitch was Martin Scorsese for Oliver and Company that I saw on the internet. <laughs> we want to hear from you guys. Please comment below and let us know what you think. That will do it for this Lobby Talks segment. We're going to try to transition in the R-weighted fashion and move into our review of John Wick, Chapter 3. Mr. Wick broke the rules. I trust you understand the repercussions if he survives. John Wick, excommunicado, is now in effect. After this, we are less than even. Would you help set the mood for our new guest? Our services still off limits to me. What do you need? Guns. Lots of guns. You think you can take John Wick? All of this for what? Because of a puppy? Wasn't just a puppy. John Wick. Chapter 3, Parabellum. Uh, very wordy name, but a kind of a cool name. Rolls off the tongue. <laughs> Once again stars Keanu Reeves as one of the big action heroes of the 21st century. We're coming off of John Wick Chapter 2, which came out in 2017, and John Wick 1, which came out in 2014. This one takes place right after John Wick Chapter 2. He's on the run from a whole group of assassins who he basically broke the assassin rules. Every assassin can kill him and make a lot of money. Also stars Lawrence Fishburne, Lance Riddick, Ian McShane, Halle Berry. Big, deep, diverse cast. So guys, obviously John Wick movies built on amazing action and really great work by Keanu Reeves. John Wick Chapter 2 especially impressed a lot of people, making a lot of people excited for this third movie with a summer release date now. But does it deliver on what we expect of John Wick, the puppy Avenger? (laughs) The puppy Avenger. (laughs) Hell yeah. (laughs) Nate Longarini, what did you think of John Wick Chapter 3? I've always had, like, stupid fun with this series. Some people are really, really high on the first two, and I'm a little bit more watered down than the the masses in that regard. I, I think they're fun, but they're simple fun in the best kind of way. It's a short, simple concept that is just dialed up all the way to 11 in terms of action scenes, in terms of the world building. Like, they just did so much with such a simple premise, and I loved it. And I honestly think that this might be my favorite. I think the action scenes are really fresh, really new. They totally perfected the realistic action scenes as well. Like, reloading is a serious thing. Missing your shots happens frequently. Needing to get guns off the people you kill happens the entire way through. Yeah. And the other movies have done this to a certain degree. 
but some of the new unique obstacles that this movie throws at you is stuff that we haven't seen in the other two movies and it made it feel just a lot more fun uh so i i had a great time with john wick 3 and i think anybody who liked the last two is gonna have a good time with this yeah these movies for as ridiculous as they get have always been really conscious of those little action tropes like there's a great kill in the first one where he uses the gun to pin the guy down while he reloads and then shoots him in the stomach like that kind of stuff is like oh amazing really appreciated jake i know you're a big fan what did you think of this one um so for me john wick 2 is still my favorite in the series i thought john wick 1 was good john wick 2 not so low-key blew me away i everything i like about the first one the second one just improves upon in my opinion and for me the third one the action's obviously great all the way through but for me truthfully i think there were parts of the story that felt a little misguided a little odd at times like i know each movie the scale gets bigger and bigger so the first one is really just him killing some mobsters the second one gets a little bit bigger and then this third one is just he's tackling like the world <laughs> yeah <laughs> pretty much i was i was okay and expecting him tackling the world but i think it kind of took me out of the john wick premise just a little bit like i love the action i love him as a character i love this underground hidden assassin world that they all live in there's something about this, the direction of the story that felt a little misguided to me, though. I don't know. But overall, I liked it. Good movie. Yeah. Um, I think the first two movies are special, not only for their action sequences, but one, because of Keanu. And obviously, that carries over again. <laughs> Man of few words. Yeah. What he, what he <laughs> does really well, he's intense and he's, like, stoic. But there's also, like, a subtle, like... There's a very much a softness to him. He's very reluctant to be the Baba Yaga. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? The, yeah, except the, who he is. Yeah, but that's who he is. And he has this kind of code and this gentlemanly chivalry, I would say, that separates him from being a pure monster. I think that's really interesting. Keanu does a really great job with that and just keeps adding to that with every movie. But beyond the action in Keanu, there's the world building that these movies do where they set up this assassin's universe which is ridiculous and absurd, but so much fun it's and so, so creative. Cool. <laughs> I love that aspect of it. And all of that continues to get more complex in this movie. And I kind of agree with you, Jake. I agree with both of you. Although I will say it's it's kind of interesting, I think, because we all are on different scales. Like, Nate, you say this is your favorite of the three. Jake says it's your second favorite, right? I In different ways, I kind of like this one and the first one equally. I probably rate them very similarly, but the second one's definitely my favorite. I would rate all three similarly. I would put this one probably the lowest because of those story things that you kind of got into. It's definitely the messiest and the most ambitious of the three. And these movies work best when they're simplistic. The best scenes in this movie are the action sequences. How we got there is not really as important. When these action sequences are happening, good Lord. They're (laughs) insane. They're really diverse. They're incredibly well shot and choreographed. They're paced perfectly. They're really clever, and they're actually kind of funny. There's some a lot of good comedic moments in these action scenes. Oh, yeah. The audience that I was with was laughing quite a bit. Yeah, and they absolutely nailed yeah, it. Yeah, they knock it out of the park. I'm trying to get a gauge on you guys. Do you think it jumped the shark a little bit too much, where we're, the stakes are just too high and then it doesn't feel right? Uh, maybe, maybe a little bit. I like the grounded feel of the first and second one. This one does feel a lot bigger. So maybe it's just something I got to get used to, but the story in general felt a little like the first, the first one is very smooth. The second one flows and is very smooth. This one just doesn't quite feel the same to me in that way. Mm. Right. I think my problem is less with how big it's gotten because I appreciate the attempts to make this grandiose story. 
uh, Jake put it well with flow is a good way to put it. The way we get from point A to point B to point C to point D is a lot more choppy than mm-hmm. in past movies. None of that really matters too much because the action is so yeah, good. Yeah, it's not as important. Everything makes sense and the action's amazing. Like, there's no plot right. holes. It just feels a little... Mm. And I'll get more into that when we get into spoilers in a bit. Um, I want to talk about the supporting cast a little bit. I think with Keanu, they surrounded him with such great actors. In particular, Halle Berry gets a lot of great things to do in this movie. I was very happy with what they did with her because from the trailers, I was worried this was going to turn into like a buddy cop movie. And not to like say you can't play with my toys, but I liked just seeing John Wick go mano a mano against the whole world. That was so much fun from the first two. And I was worried that they were just going to team up the whole movie. So I'm glad her part was as small but as memorable as it was. She doesn't dominate the screen by any means. um, But when she is on screen, she's a very fun presence. And it feels earned when she gets her her great team up moment with John Wick. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I'm totally with you there because she's not in the movie as much as I thought she would be. And I was a little surprised by that. But once the movie ends, I thought it was a really good choice. Yeah, absolutely agree. All of the actors that are in this and how they use them, I think they use them really well. And they never let you forget that Keanu is the star, too, which is important. Um, So I think part of the fun of these movies is getting into specifically the kills and the things that might have bothered us and the things that we want to gush about. So I think it's a good time to start to pivot towards spoilers. But before we do that, let's give our ratings. If you're just joining the middle seats for the first time, we rate movies based on the seat scale. If we absolutely love a movie and think there's almost no flaws whatsoever, we give it a royal throne. If it's a great movie that has some minor flaws, we give it a plus recliner. If it's a really good movie with like some major glaring flaws, we give it a wooden seat. If it's the inverse of that, where it's a movie that's like kind of iffy, borderlining bad, but still has some decent things in it, we give it a damp lawn chair. And if it's a movie with no redeeming qualities whatsoever, we give it a sleazy outhouse. And if we think you need to see it in the theater, either for an audience or for projection slash surround sound, we give it a bag of popcorn moniker. Jake, what would you rate John Wick Chapter 3? It's a pretty solid plush recliner. Uh, and I would say bag of popcorn. You sh- One, the action is so good that you should see it on theaters. And the audience, that at least that I went with, had a great time. And it does help that the... Uh, movie experience so i would say definitely bag of popcorn season theaters and just a rock solid plush recliner definitely a really good movie overall only some minor flaws that i have with it mate yep pretty similar boat here at this point in the series i think you know what you're signing up for it's just a matter of how much you enjoy it and i had a good time with it this is a plush recliner this is a bag of popcorn uh keanu reeves is absolutely killing it this franchise is killing it with just how creative they can take a simple gunfight and just go oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all the way, uh, running circles around every other action franchise in recent memory. Absolutely. It really does boil down to a very simple premise. Like, you aren't intellectually simulated by these movies, I don't think. And I think it's okay that we have these kind of movies that just perfect what they're good at. And this movie excels at what it's good at. So, yeah, good recommendation for me. I definitely see what you're saying, Nate, but I there's nothing simple about a gunfight in John Wick. <laughs> no. And that's what I kind of love about it. There are three or four sequences in this movie that you'll see probably on some kind of YouTube compilation of the best action scenes of the 2010s because there's just they just stack these absurdly ridiculous but fun and well-done moments on top of each other. They have absolutely set the bar for action choreography. Right. 
And for that reason alone, this movie's worth a plush recliner. Now, it, like I said, it's the weakest of the three, in my opinion, if we're taking it as a body as a whole. I think I would classify it like this. The action scenes in John Wick 3 are the best of the series. Everything else is probably the weakest of the three. But like I said, they're really close to each other. So don't take this as a knock at all. This is one of my favorite movies of the year so far. Just because of its craftsmanship, you absolutely need to see this in theater. Prussia Kreiner made of bulletproof leather is what we're going to call this. <laughs> this is a pretty organic one, right? Not that bad. You've been worse. <laughs> I, yeah. Backhand a compliment. Anyway, let's get into our spoiler section for John Wick Chapter 3. If you have not seen Parabellum. Tune out now because we are going to spoil probably some of the best kills in the movie, and I want you to experience that yourself. If you have seen it, join us in our spoiler section. Whoa! Oh, spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Excuse me, spoiler alert! So I think the best way to start is if we just gush about our favorite action scenes slash like kills. I think that's the most fun that, of it. That's what everybody wants to hear about. All right, I'm going to bring it up first before you steal it from me. Go. The book. The book kill, first one of the whole movie. Way, yeah. Set the tone. Amazing way to start. <laughs> as great as this movie is, it might peak in the first 25 minutes because of that book kill, which for you guys was awesome. For me, doubly awesome because that guy is a center for the Philadelphia 76ers. Mm -hmm. and he's like a big meme in the NBA. Amazing to see him in the movie, give John Wick a run for his money but then still get taken out. Brutally. Yeah. Brutally murdered. Yeah. I just love that. Like, the first movie, we get teased about the pencil kill. And then the second movie, you actually see it. And maybe controversial opinion, but I actually would rather we never saw that scene. I don't know. I just kind of like the mystery more than actually seeing it happen. Still uh, a fun scene. I liked I, it. I, I like that they talked <laughs> about it. But not to dwell on that too long. Using a book... Come yeah. on. That's just so and creative. the way he does it. It's not like he just hits him in the head over and over again. He gets creative with it. This is why kids don't want to go to the library anymore. Because of this and Jason Bourne, who also killed someone <laughs> with a book in a different way. <laughs> oh, man. It's just so good. For me, honestly, I love the use of animals in this movie. Like, he kills three or four people with horses, and it's... Oh my god. Oh my god. <laughs> you know what I love about that scene? Is that John Wick is usually pretty nice. He's a, he's a complete dick in that scene. He, he ties one guy up oh and just God. drags him. Yeah, he did not have to do that. He has he still had ammunition in his gun. He did not have to do and that. The, the way he gets <laughs> horses to pinpoint accurately kick these people in the head is just, wow. So unnecessary, but so wow. good. Yeah. <laughs> it's so fun. Uh, when I said this movie peaks in the first 25 minutes, it's that book kill and... The knife fight for me is my favorite part of the movie. Oh, that was great. Just unbelievable. Like, you walk into this room and you see all of these, like, knives and guns and stuff. And it's like, oh, well, all of that is going to be used somehow. And it does not disappoint. How, when he throws the axe across the room and hits the guy oh, in the yeah. head. What a great, like, a lesser director, would, you would have watched that from John's perspective. But I love how you say across the room and see him throw it from across the room <laughs> like you're the guy. One of the things that people love about John Mike is his double tap. Like, he usually shoots people two or three times. He does that with the knives, too. There are times he throws two or three knives into the same chest. Mm -hmm. And I'm yeah. like, oh. And some of those knives are just falling off. Like, he isn't perfectly throwing those knives. And that's cool because oh, yeah. he isn't unstoppable. We see him get his ass handed to him several times throughout this movie. Several times. Yeah. yeah. 
It's Im- he's imperfect, but he's incredible at what he does. And he never stays down. <laughs> and that's what just makes him so terrifying. The opening to that sequence, too, before we even get to the knives, when he rebuilds that old gun just for it to shoot it once. Like, once. <laughs> like again, that's, that's an example of the movie's, like, wicked sense of comedy. Like, that and the yeah. horses. And this transitions well, I think, into the finale, because there's a lot of that there, Nate. Oh, yeah, please let me talk about this. Setting up the fact that they went unprepared for the body armor and then having to improvise and go under the helmets. <laughs> yes. And then go back to the room saying we need more firepower. Like that so kind good. of stuff doesn't get addressed in other action movies. Yeah, nobody does that. Our heroes are always equipped to handle the first round of baddies. 100%. They can take them down like tinfoil in other movies. Not in John Wick. Yeah, like little pea shooter guns work on like when they would never work. Like it's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, so body armor actually doing something. The bad guys standing up to our heroes um, and our heroes having to work around it, even temporarily, was just so satisfying to watch. I I think I was probably, like, in wooden seat territory on average, but that finale raised it all the way up for me. I, I just got so much more respect for the movie for just having the balls to do something like that. Yeah, I'm totally with you. I love that they had to go back and reload and grab different guns for the, the occasion. Like, you just don't see that. That doesn't happen often. Right. So good. I love how that how it transitions nicely into showing things just for them to be knocked down. When we see that huge room of glass earlier... It's like, well, every single piece of glass in that room will be broken by the end of this movie. <laughs> yeah. What a and, what a beautiful set. Roger Deakins would have had a field day. Right. They, mm. it, like, I didn't think they would be able to top the museum from the second one because that's one of my favorite shot action scenes ever. The, the Museum of Mirrors mm-hmm. at the end. It's brilliantly done. But they found a way. Mm-hmm. And the fact that he's basically fighting John Wick fanboys is pretty funny. So funny. Those are the guys from The Raid. Yeah, that was so, so. Yeah. funny. Yeah, they they were having a ball. Like, I don't even think they were acting at that point. They were just smiling extras <laughs> that happened to be amazing fighters. Right. I love how everything in John Wick is is dramatic. So generally in screen, I, there's a rule of threes. Typically, you'll do things in three. So if John Wick misses once, misses twice, he'll, he'll get him the third time. Or if somebody's going to throw you into something, they're going to throw you into a wall, a second wall, and then probably finish you with a third wall. In John Wick... He is thrown through like six or seven glass cases. I love that. <laughs> Everything is over the top and they don't care. So funny. <laughs> I love it. I love how they just are like, screw it. John Wick does what he wants and so will we. Right. Mm. Heading backwards a little bit. I want to go back to Halle Berry's big sequence because that sequence almost becomes her. And then Keanu jumps back in for a couple of seconds. Those dogs are amazing. Again, oh. great, great use of animals and great choreography. Yeah, this series must love PETA because they just are so nice to animals. Like, <laughs> all of the bloodlust is because of animals, basically. And those dogs were assholes. They were, like, exclusively going for nut shots. Yeah, pretty much. Well, that's what they do. <laughs> <laughs> like, that, I, I'm being serious. That's, like, realistic. That's absolutely what they're going for when they're that low to the ground. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> that kind of, again, that transitions beyond action scenes to maybe story things that I had a little issue with. If you're brawn... Why are you provoking her like this? Why would you shoot her dog right in front of her? <laughs> Wait, Bron from Game of Thrones. His name is Jerome Flynn. He shows I, up. Yeah, I, nobody's going to know that, so I just called him Bron. I know, that's why I'm explaining. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was happy to see him in this. Yeah, although it was very short-lived very. <laughs> because of decisions he made. But I think the biggest problems I had with the story is just like 
the whole thing is John Wick needs to go meet some person who can take them to another person who tells him how to get to another person. That's the entire story for most of the movie. Like he meets Angelica Houston. Angelica Houston's like, I'll get you out of the country and get you to Halle Berry. And Halle Berry's like, okay, I'll take you to Jerome Flynn. And Jerome Flynn's like, I will give you the location of my boss out in the desert. That's choppy. That's not great. Yeah. And that's kind of how I felt. I, I felt like the second movie was a lot smoother. I think it was getting to the high table guy in the desert. That was the step too far for me. Yeah. Like if as far along the high table as we went was like the the bank there, I think I would have been happy. I think I would have been content. I feel like they've already said that they want to make a fourth one of these. Yeah. It's, it's set for two years from now. I was very surprised that this was as open-ended as it was. Yeah, exactly. me too. So – uh, I, I think they wanted to just get his introduction out of the way so that way it's more satisfying in the next movie when they go after him. But I, I agree, it was, it was too much setup for what this movie was. If we're getting into like a small nitpick, and I don't think this is like a huge deal, where are all the cops in this city? Can I just get like one just for the heck of it, just to see that they exist? Like <laughs> there are three separate times where he's parading down the streets. He's like going on to close bridges and having huge like massacre fights on like mm-hmm. motorcycles, motorcycles, horse. Yeah. You can't have a lot of story issues because there's not a lot of story in John Wick, I right. guess. Yes. <laughs> You're right. absolutely right. But for me, cops don't do anything with John Wick. Like they show up in the first movie, they show up to his house after many, many bullets and they call it a noise complaint and leave. Like, uh, to Drew's point, it, it made sense to me that that cop knows John Wick, that one particular cop, not the entire police force, you know? Yeah, I'm playing devil's advocate. It's upstate New York <laughs> versus New York City is the thing. I think we should start to wrap it up here because I think we're just kind of getting to gushing territory here. Right. I could watch John Wick kill people for like 24 hours straight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we might get there if this franchise keeps going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. At this point, Nate, final thoughts on John Wick Chapter 3 Parabellum. Yeah, besides the title, which is still a mouthful, and I don't get why they extended it so much, but another rock-solid action set piece. It's the best kind of action in that it's different than anything else that's come out of theaters in the last couple of years. So if you have any attachment whatsoever to either just the good fight scenes, to Keanu Reeves, or the world that John Wick as a franchise has made so far, you are going to have an absolute ball with this movie. So definitely recommended for me. You know, just... (laughs) <laughs> don't piss off John Wick, and I think you'll be just fine. <laughs> Hopefully. Jake? Yeah, absolutely. Action fanboys rejoice. John Wick is absolutely setting the bar. These will go down as some of the better action movies of a long time. Without a doubt, they will be mimicked. They will be looked at. They will be praised. I'm sure you're going to see a lot of action movies try and replicate what John Wick is doing so successfully. Great character, amazing, unbelievable action, overall good story, and I love the this hidden assassin world that they all lived in. It's just really rock-solid stuff. If you like action, this is just always up your alley, basically. I, the hidden assassin world is what really sets it apart from just a generic action movie for it me. It makes it a, a, that much more interesting. It's really fun to explore this universe. Now, do we get a little bit over the top with it sometimes? Absolutely. This movie has four screenwriters as opposed to the... The first two is just single screenwriters. So that'll tell you what you need to know about overconvolution. But at the same time, when you go big, you really need to nail that action. And wow, do they do that. You absolutely should see this movie on a big screen. Plus recliner, go see it. All three of us recommend it. That will do it for our John Wick Chapter 3 review. Let's switch gears quite a bit here. And let's talk about the live action adaptation of Aladdin. Aladdin. 
I can make you rich. What would I have to do? There's a cave of wonders. Bring me the lamp. Watch this. Watch out! Uh, you done wound me up! You ain't never had a friend like me! Hey, can you make me a prince? There is a lot of gray area in Make Me a Prince. Really? I thought a princess could go anywhere. Not this princess. Do you trust me? Don't you dare close your eyes. Hold your breath, it gets better. Let me share this whole new world with you. Aladdin is directed by Guy Ritchie, of all people. Very interesting choice for this. Guy Ritchie of Snatch, Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels, the past two Sherlock Holmes movies, King Arthur, Legend of the Sword. He's got a dense filmography. It stars Mina Masood, Naomi Scott, Will Smith, Nassim Pedrad, and a bunch of other people embodying classic characters from the 1992 movie. Do I really need to do the plot? I mean, we'll do it just to humor you. Aladdin, he's a street rat in Agrabah, which is a fake Arab town. He finds himself in a bunch of shenanigans. He finds himself attracting the genie in the lamp, played by Will Smith this time, not Robin Williams, of course, for obvious reasons and tragic reasons. R.I.P. And, of course, the whole movie is about him trying to impress the beautiful, stunning, smart Jasmine. Other things happen along the way. Of course, we all know the big musical numbers. It's a beloved classic for a reason. And for that reason, online backlash to certain promotional materials has been quite the story developing throughout the Aladdin press campaign. The way that a certain genie looked, the way that certain characters talked because of the special effects, everything that could be scrutinized about these Aladdin trailers were discussed in full online. So now here's the question. Is it worth all of that hubbub? Is it worth all of that worry? Is Aladdin good? And does it disrespect the original? A lot of questions, a lot to talk about. Jake Hensler, what did you think of Aladdin? So I think you're going to find me using the word enough a lot. And not as in enough like I'm sick of it. Enough as in it was fine enough and Aladdin was entertaining enough. It was charming enough to be, to be decent. It was fine. I probably won't remember much about it this time next year. I was having a, a good enough time watching it. I will say probably the first 20 to 25 minutes, I thought I was in for a train wreck. I do think the genie's presence onward elevates the movie, but again, not elevates it to anything really all that special whatsoever. Like some good sets, some good uh, costumes, some good musical numbers, but overall the movie was fine enough for me to just, I don't know, not dislike it. It was, it was okay. Nate, I think it would be safe to assume that out of the three of us, you're the biggest Aladdin fan here. So, I mean, I think I'm the most curious out of your thoughts. No offense, Jake, but I think <laughs> I'm the most curious out of his thoughts here because there's a lot riding on this. Absolutely. It, this is one of those that hits me right in the nostalgia. It is probably my most rewatched Disney classic, like just behind uh, Lion King. And so, yeah, I... 
I feel like every time we bring up these live-action remakes, I'm repeating myself. So bear with me, listeners, if you're repeaters. But I am so off the train for these live-action adaptations. I don't feel like they're necessary. My biggest complaint always is that character animations just show so much more emotion than any live-action performance you can get. No matter how good of a cast and a director you have, there's just something about animation that lets you get all the characters emotion and the charm and the fantasy elements of these stories better than anywhere else and this movie predictably falls pretty flat on the magic it's it's fine it's serviceable but i'm so tired of serviceable (laughs) live action remakes i'm just so (laughs) bored by them this did nothing new in that department Um, I will give the movie a little bit of props. First off, the online backlash against the genie, I feel, was pretty unwarranted after the fact. Uh, Will Smith's performance is similar enough to appeal to the nostalgia crowd, but clearly also not imitating Robin Williams, which I think is exactly what they should have done. It's what they did in the Broadway musical, and it worked here. I think Will Smith shines every time he's on screen, CGI is a little iffy at times, but for the most part, holds pretty well. I will also give the movie props for what they did with Jasmine. We'll go more into it when we get into our in-depth thoughts, but I actually think they did a really good job to our character. The counterpoint to all this is that all your favorite supporting characters are pretty shunned here. Jafar is boring. Iago the parrot is nowhere close to what you get from the original. Borderline unnecessary. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Abu the monkey, uh, Raj the tiger, even the sultan is pretty boring in this one. So yeah, in terms of a whole, I'm tired, but it was okay, I guess. He's actually higher than I thought he would be. Yeah, me too. That was a really (laughs) depressing way to say that. Nate, if you're driving the hate train, I'm basically Tom Hanks as the conductor in the back. Like, (laughs) chugga chugga along, my friend, because everything you said I agree with. I, I mean, I don't want to speculate, but I think I'm probably the biggest Lion King fan out of the three of us, and I bet I'll have words for that later this summer. Um, but Aladdin, I really like Aladdin, too. It's a good movie. Uh, I don't think it's on the same level as The Lion King or Beauty and the Beast as far as the Renaissance goes. I think Little Mermaid and Aladdin are, like, neck and neck for me. But it's really charming, and of course, the whole concept of an Aladdin movie was so weird to me because that movie's so special because of Robin Williams. And he's not around this anymore, unfortunately. So what do you do? And to Will Smith's credit, he is probably the best thing about this movie. He brings a lot of charm to the character. He does a really nice job. Fine is the word we keep saying. And I, I kind of agree with it. I think we're all in that same range. The movie does a really nice job with the big musical numbers that you remember from the original, in my opinion. Like A Whole New World, Friend Like Me. All of those are done pretty well. And I think the actors overall do a really nice job. Mina Masood, I'm not convinced he's a great actor, but he's exactly what Aladdin needs to be, which is charming and just kind of like flat. You know what I mean? Like Aladdin was never the deepest character anyway. He does what the role No, he's grounded. Naomi Scott is really good as Jasmine. Again, we'll get into more that in depth, but they're definitely looked at what the backlash was to the 92 version of the character and were able to kind of adjust that to modern sensibilities. Everything that they were tried to replicate, they did a decent job with. I have problems with the additions and the changes. And as usual, those are the problems. They're not as egregious. I had more problems with 
Beauty and the Beast as far as this went. Because Beauty and the Beast really went heavy on the padding. This movie adds about 36 minutes to the original, and almost none of it is necessary. But it's not annoying. And we'll get into what those elements are later. But that, and like you were saying, Nate, with the changes, I think Jafar is a good point to pinpoint here because he's not really sinister. They give him a backstory that you understand but don't really need. It just doesn't have the same vibrancy as the animated version. Not even close. (laughs) Jafar, I think, it's tough between him and Scar, and they're both very similar where they're both selfish villains just looking to get as much power as possible. But there's just so much charisma Even in just the voice performances, there's just so much that is memorable about the original Jafar that is just lacking in here. I feel like the movie wanted to make a more realistic villain, which I suppose is a fine enough goal, but it's a fantasy movie. Like, we're supposed to be having fun and be enchanted by this movie. I don't think you need a realistic villain to make it fun. What's fun is a sneering villain who taunts the actor, ugh, I'm sorry. It, it's hard for me to not skewer oh, too much into the nostalgia realm here, but like Jafar is just one of my favorites, man, and they did him so dirty in this movie. Yeah, uh, I was not a fan at all. He's very dull. Jake, let me pitch something to you. Eddie Redmayne, Jupiter Ascending type performance for a Jafar live action role. Uh, do not like Jupiter Ascending. <laughs> That's why I pitched it to you. But I think a, perfor- a performance like that could actually fit. Because he is so all over the place and so over the top. That actually could have fit for Jafar. Right. Where Jafar in this one is just like, ooh, I'm evil behind the scenes. Ooh, I want power. Whatever. You're not that. You're really not that interesting. He needed to be more flashy, I think. I see what they're trying to do. They're trying to make a parallel between Jafar and Aladdin because this version of Jafar came up from like he had to scrap and kill and everything to get to where he is. Right. And Aladdin is has to scrap every day to get to the point and the whole point is that like you know power corrupts you basically right Mm -hmm. but we don't need that we know that already the whole point of what happens with aladdin is because of that yeah he learns the lesson fine on his own in the first movie we don't need the bad guy to reinforce the lesson right it's too much the one that really bothered me was the sultan because the sultan is such like a warm like goofy awesome kind little character in the original Mm -hmm. and this guy's just like Oh my God, take an upper, man. Like, <laughs> can we smile? He's uptight, just as strict as the animated version, but without the goofy charm to make you kind of forget that. Him getting hypnotized essentially is his character for 90% of the movie. There's just no charm in that. It's not fun. I want to have fun. I'm putting my head down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think for me, it's pretty much exactly what we thought it would be. In both good and bad ways. It's not this big disaster, but it's also not... Anything special. Exactly. Yeah. And again, Mm -hmm. the fact that it's not anything special brings us back around to, does it need to exist in the first place besides money? That's a discussion we'll have all the length long day because we'll have to do a lot more of these reviews. God help us all. (laughs) Uh, You two got out of Dumbo. That was hopefully rock bottom. (laughs) I will say, I'm pretty surprised that... uh, Like, if you had told me a month ago we would all agree that Will Smith as a genie was the best part about this, I'd be pretty surprised. Right. I never worried about him. I always worried about the effects more than anything. And the design. I think if you you look back at our initial thoughts in our previous podcast episode, I think we're all relatively consistent with our views here. Like, 
we thought Will Smith was as good as we were going to get if we didn't have Robin, and we were more concerned about the effects than his performance. Yeah. I want to say we're consistent. Right. Call us out, listeners, if we're total hypocrites <laughs> and we should got to be burnt at the stake here. But <laughs> And I think he's only terrifying like 25% of the time. There are times where I'm like, whoa, they should not have lit him like that. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> it's in like the dark cave, I think, where that looks off. Yeah. He looks kind of pasted <laughs> on here. He bloods into the background. Mm-hmm. In the underwater scene, too, I remember like there was a close-up sh- shot of him that just made me jilt a little bit like, Ooh, nope, that's Uncanny Valley right there. Yeah, some of the effects are real bad. A lot of it's just generic CGI dusting, you know? Yeah. The, they use that effect for his genie's tail, and like a lot of the magic spells just involve that little sparkle around everything. Mm-hmm. And, like, we've had that since the 2000s, you know? Yeah. It's not impressive by any stretch. <laughs> I really didn't think Abu looked that good either. Like, no. the technology is, should have evolved from Pirates of the Caribbean back in 2003, yet that monkey still looks exactly the monkey from that movie. Good point. <laughs> they tried to make his eyes get wide and big to have a little bit of emotion, because obviously the animated version has so much character in the facial expressions there. So I can tell they kind of fudge the anatomy a little bit with the eyes just to have a little bit more. Right, spark them up. Compared to, like, say, the monkey from uh, Night at the Museum, you know? That just looked like an evil monkey because it was a realistic monkey. But it's just not enough. Like, you're trying to make a whimsical character out of something that, for the most part, looks like a real monkey, and it just falls flat. Absolutely. All right, let's move into spoilers here and start to pivot here. Jake, I'm going to let you start to give your thoughts. What would you rate Aladdin? Uh, so like I was I was saying earlier with, with the enough stuff, it was like fine enough, charming enough, entertaining enough. It wasn't often dumb. So I'll probably say like sometimes we'll go high end, low end, polished, blah, blah, blah. Nothing like that. This is a average old ordinary wooden seat. I wouldn't even say you need to see this in theaters unless you're a big Disney fan. The, the Some of the effects are good. Maybe you get a good audience, but I wouldn't say you need to see this in theaters. It's just... It's fine. It's all right. You won't really miss much if you don't see it. It's just, but if you decide to, you, you'll probably be okay. Like, not disappointed or anything. It's just, eh. So, glowing recommendation. <laughs> I'm sure this one will be even better, Nate. It's, it's a hard one for me to rate because most of my frustration just comes from the fact that we have a better version of this movie. So, I'm really trying to just take a critical lens to this and say, if I had not seen the earlier version and I didn't have that to compare... What would I give this one? And I usually don't go in betweeny on my ratings, but I think this one deserves it. It is like a moist wooden seat. (laughs) (laughs) It's not fully damp. There's enough movie here that is satisfactory, and there's enough performance here that is satisfactory that I can't fully go on and say that it's negative, even though my personal feelings for this movie definitely veer more in that direction. But I'm trying to just be honest with myself on this one. It falls more into the wooden seat category than the damp lawn chair category. I respect your objectivity. <laughs> How many people cringed when you said the word moist? I'm wondering if we took a poll of our viewers. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, I think I'm a little higher than you, Nate. Like a tiny bit. Not a lot. I've been through my nom, which was Dumbo. <laughs> I, I even disliked Beauty and the Beast more than this. This is probably my second favorite of these, which is a faint praise. Right. Well, because Jungle Book is actually good. Right. In my opinion, it's Jungle Book, then a big gap, and then the rest of these. Mm-hmm. But then this is this is towards the top. When it's recreating the big iconic moments of the original, it succeeds. 
When it's doing anything else, it's very questionable. And for that reason, it never stops feeling like this really accomplished like tribute film, but it never feels like it lives up to anything resembling the original Aladdin. Uh, this movie should be celebrated for a few things. I do want to applaud it for its diversity in casting. Absolutely. Very important. It's really nice that we didn't whitewash any of these. We didn't have a la last airbender thing. But the movie itself is just all right. I'm giving it a wooden seat. It just so happens to have a magic carpet at its feet. But that's not like it's a dirty carpet. It's not a good one. <laughs> he can't help himself. He mm -hmm. has to add on something. <laughs> yeah. I, you got to make it exciting. Uh, you don't need to see this in theaters. It's probably actually better if you watch it on your laptop because the effects won't look like crap as much. <laughs> <laughs> if you have not seen... Do I have to do that? You've seen Aladdin. If you have not seen this version of Aladdin, you don't. I mean, you can still probably join yeah, us. Yeah, honestly, if there ever were a movie to just not care about the spoilers, it's this one because we all know what Aladdin's about. We are going mm -hmm. to spoil what they've changed. Let's move into spoilers. Whoa! Oh, spoiler alert. Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Excuse me, spoiler alert! Alrighty, so. There is a good amount to unpack in terms of things that we didn't like, and we're going to try to stay a little bit more objective and focus on the positives first. And I think probably the highlight for all of us is Naomi Scott as Princess Jasmine. I thought she did a really good job, and I think they did a lot of good things with her character. She's got a bright future. Yeah, this version of the princess wants to be Sultan specifically to help the people of Agrabah. So she has a personal stake in what's going on, even though she's unaware of Aladdin's deceptions and uh, Jafar's scheming for most of the movie. So she has her own stake in it, and she feels just involved throughout the entire movie, more so than the animated cartoon. Completely agree. And I also like how they tie it into her mother, too, which we don't really hear about too much in the original. Mm, for sure. Naomi Scott has this factor that you're looking for in an actress, where she has this, like, she's really charming, she can be funny, but she can also be really dramatic and stuff. Although I will say, I'm not going to try to veer too much negative, but I do not like that new song. I really don't think it's very good. I think the new song was just so out of place. The movie literally stops time to yeah. sing the song. <laughs> yeah. See, I thought the song was fine, but the execution was like, what? Yeah. I think if it happened a scene earlier. I agree. She, I think she did a very good job, and I think the handling of her character was done very well. But... Yeah, as far as this, the song goes, <laughs> it literally does stop. And I'm, my audience is actually very into it. This lady next to me was all about all the musical numbers. So I guess if you're not us and you're not overly critical, like we can be sometimes, you may actually enjoy a lot of it. But I agree. I think the song itself was good, but some of the execution was like, why? Yeah, I, I'm not a big fan of the song. One more Jasmine thing before we move on. And this is more just Jasmine in general. And it kind of speaks to how this movie doesn't work as well in live action. Like, <laughs> that's a real tiger hanging out with her. Like, it's not a cartoon cute one. It's no. a real tiger. <laughs> that is really irresponsible of everybody that works at the palace to let the heir to the throne hang out with a live tiger all day. And then she doesn't even use it when <laughs> Jafar becomes Sultan, you know? Right. I thought we were going to have a fight scene there. Yeah. That would have been a better spot for the song, I think, than her being dragged away in handcuffs. <laughs> Idris know. Elba possesses the voice of the tiger. That tiger looks exactly like Shere Khan, yeah. too. <laughs> Actually, let's move on to other songs. I thought, just to list them off really quick, Friend Like Me was about what I expected. Not quite as entertaining as the original, but up there. It was it was well done. Agreed. Prince Ali 
was a little slow, a little low energy for me. It was better than that clip. I was going to say, I actually like the whole uh, Prince Ali introduction scene. It escalated pretty well. It started slow, and yeah. then I thought it built to something nice. Yeah, like mm. a solid choreograph, solid performance from Will Smith. Mm. I liked it. I'm very curious to see what you guys think about the the big one. Whole new world. I was not a fan, not because of the singing. I thought the singing was good. But the scene itself was just so dark. It was so blue. I didn't see mm. much of the world we were trying to sing about. <laughs> I'm going to have to give it another go. It was my favorite scene in the movie first time through. Because I think the two of them singing it was like perfect. They did a great job. Right. For me, I think they had very good chemistry for the scene. But the scene itself could have been directed a little better. Yeah, I got to give it another look. Because I was kind of whisked away in the moments. I got the chills that I was supposed to in that moment. Just mm. because that's such a good song. A Whole New World is maybe a top five Disney song. Oh, absolutely, yeah. They did an amazing job of making it sound good that I wasn't really all visualed out. Maybe this is a little bit of the nostalgia of me talking, but, like, when I'm a kid, I didn't care about the love story. I cared about the fun visuals on screen. And during Whole New World, you see, like, the Sphinx lose its nose. You see ponies, I think, dancing through Greece. You're seeing all these different worlds that's, both beautiful and funny or entertaining to watch as this is all going on. And you end with like the cool Chinese New Year's ceremony where Jasmine confronts uh, Ali as Aladdin. There's just like cool visuals throughout the whole thing. I was very underwhelmed with just how much blue ocean we saw during this. Like yeah. there wasn't there wasn't a lot there to excite me visually, even mm. though the music, again, very well performed. He does what he can, but Guy Ritchie's clearly out of his element when we get into that kind of stuff. Because I thought the most comfortable he was as a director was during the one jump ahead number where we first meet Aladdin. I thought the way that they did Arabian Nights where they kind of had the tracking shot where we meet all the characters was kind of cool. I liked one jump ahead a lot because it's very reminiscent of something like Sherlock Holmes where it's in the nitty gritty of hallways and stuff like that. And it's the camera weaving in and out of there. That was the moment where I was like, okay, he might be a good choice for this. And then there were other moments where I was like, he is the wrong choice for this, basically. I actually, as far as positives go, I think generally the music was pretty good. And I think the sets were actually pretty good. You know, made me into the movie enough where I wasn't, I don't know, taken out of it or felt weird. Like it mm. felt, like visually, I guess a lot of the movie felt okay between the sets and the uh, special effects and stuff like that. Yeah, for the most part, I agree with you. I think we brought this up during our initial trailer discussion, but I feel like Agrabah as a city was a little too clean. Like, it made sense in the palace that everything looked pristine yeah. and super gold, but I felt like the city wasn't as rugged as it could have been compared to what we got in the animated movie. Like, we got the sense of busyness, but we didn't get the same type of charm and, like, mystical elements that we got in the first one. Like, there was no guy eating fire or swallowing swords or lying on nails in this one. They could have used more and better details. For things like that. Yeah, more details. Yeah. And I think just like even some unclean details uh, just would have made the movie feel a little bit more real to me. If It felt like a Broadway set. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, you know what? You're kind of right. You're kind of right. And I think that's, again, that's the limits of animation. And we're talking about why make these movies in the first place. And a lot of the focus of why they say they're making them, it's like, oh, we're going to do our own version. We're going to add things to it. I really didn't need the genie to have a romance with a real person. Yeah, the, his whole human arc was weird. And it was odd that they opened the show with that, too. The framing device was stupid. I was really not into that. When I found out what they were trying to do, I was like, all right, I understand it. It doesn't mean I like it. Yeah. The first, like, 20 minutes, I was 
not digging this movie at all. And the very first opening shot, I was like, what is happening? It's kind of odd that the desert movie started over the ocean, huh? <laughs> yeah, I was like, where are we right now? What's going on? <laughs> I liked most of the beginning besides that opening point. Because, like, one of my favorite musical numbers is towards the beginning. Right. And then it gets dull for a little bit, and then they bring the genie back in, and it gets kind of reinvigorated. Yeah, But yeah. it takes a lot less time in the original to get to that point, and it took a lot of time, like, a half an hour to get to the genie at this point, and it's like, all right, can we wrap this up and let's go. Mm. My last thing, out of the two big names from the original animated classic, you have, obviously, Robin Williams, but also Guilford Godfrey as Iago the Parrot. And... They just did my boy Iago so dirty in this movie. He's not even like a generic bad guy parrot. He literally just says words and acts as Jafar's ears and just repeats plot points. Like, he doesn't even have his own character in this movie. We could have done without him. Yeah. He's a real parrot. Yeah, it's a shame. Yeah. You even cast Alan Tudyk as a potentially fun thing. Like, he was the chicken in Moana, or you could have spoke like the original parrot did and been its own character and try to do something fun and new with a fairly beloved character. But he was literally just like an extra megaphone for Jafar. He wasn't even fun. Yeah, it was really, really a shame. Like you said, he really could have just done without the parrot. You could have taken the parrot out of the movie and nothing would have changed. Well, I, I disagree with that because the movie uses him as a crutch like five or six times where it's like, how many times is Iago gonna be eavesdropping on them deliver that information mm-hmm. to Jafar. Yeah, I guess. But I feel like they, they could have used some kind of magic spell if they needed to. Like, like very the original useless. movie did. How about that? Right. <laughs> they would have needed a, a severe rewrite to take the parrot out. But at the same time, the parrot didn't need to talk. There was no reason. Mm. To get Alan Tudyk to just do that. I could do yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, it's a shame. Mm-hmm. All right, let's start to wrap this up here. Uh, Jake, final thoughts. Uh, final thoughts. One thing I haven't mentioned that was very distracting, not necessarily a bad thing, but distracting. The actor who played Aladdin reminded me a lot, and I mean a lot, of Dave Franco. Sounded like him, and he had a charm that kind of felt like him. So the whole movie, I was like, this really feels like Dave Franco, and I was very distracted by it for the whole movie. I'm not going to lie. Huh. Um, that aside, I think positives i think some of the sets were good i think some of the musical numbers were good i think will smith was good i think naomi scottish jasmine was good and the majority of the movie was just sure they're gonna make them it's not it's not a bad movie again entertaining and charming enough at a point i didn't dislike it but not exactly worth your time either like i don't know you're if you're a parent your kids would probably enjoy it like your little kids but then you could just give me animated movie so i don't know whatever it's just whatever <laughs> whatever that's the word of the day Yep. Nate, final thoughts. Uh, if, if it's not clear already, I'm just so done with these, and I'm so annoyed that we're not done with them. <laughs> yeah, just, it's so satisfactory, but in the blandest, boringest way possible. Like, again, I can't deny that the movie was competent in what it set out to do. I just wish that its mission wasn't to be competent. Yeah. Just right. excel. Do something that wows me. I'm happy that at least our main three characters were all good. Uh, Will Smith was fun. Uh, Mina and Naomi, Aladdin and Jasmine, respectively, both were fine. Jasmine more so than Aladdin, in my opinion. But it's the supporting cast that made the move, the original movie so memorable and so much fun, whimsical, magical, the works. And we just don't got that here. <laughs> and 
it just makes me sad. Hit me right in the nostalgia. Mm. Yeah, I don't really have much more to say beyond that. I will say again, kind of going back around to the things that it does well as far as respecting the diversity and the culture of the cast. Really like the costuming. Really like that it ends kind of with like a Bollywood dance number. I thought that was kind of cute. And those are the kind of things that they should have been striving for more as opposed to just adding unnecessary elements to the plot. Find a way to make this special to the young boys and girls that are watching it that are getting to see their own live action version of this story play out. But those same those same kids can be watching the original Aladdin too. And that is not going to be able to be a defense for a lot of these. Like when we're going to get like white ass frozen like years from now, we're just going to have to accept the fact that they're doing these for money. It'll happen eventually. At some point, Disney will own everybody and nothing will matter. And that's the end of the Middle Seeds podcast. They'll own the Middle Seeds podcast by the end of this episode. At this rate. Well, at least get paid. <laughs> uh, yeah, honestly, I would take the paycheck. Yeah. Wooden seat. Did I say that? Royal throne. <laughs> We're on the payroll now, folks. That'll do it for this week's episode of the Middle Seeds podcast for our great double review here and this great episode. Nate Lungarini, where can they find us on the Internet? Alrighty, here's how you can get in touch with us. Please like, comment, and subscribe to our YouTube channel, The Middle Seats. You can also listen to us on the go on all your podcast platforms, including Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, and SoundCloud. For questions, comments, and updates on the show, keep an eye on our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, all at The Middle Seats. And if you like what you hear and you want to see more content, let us know and spread the word. It's the summer of fun here on the Middle Seats. We've got a lot of movies we want to be talking about over the next couple of weeks. Stick with us. We're having a great time talking about them. We've already touched on Avengers, Detective Pikachu, and now these two movies. Be sure to check them out because they're pretty fun reviews. In future weeks, we'll be touching on things like the next X-Men movie. Uh, Godzilla will probably be in there. Toy Story will probably be in there. And then a whole bunch more. That will do it for us. For Nate Lungarini and Jay Kensler, we're going back in the lamp. I'm Andrew Oje. Keep that seat warm, everyone. We'll be back soon.